Good morning. Good to see you this morning and glad that you uh, are out of bed this morning and here we are again gathered in this place to uh, consider a godly man's love for the church. And uh, uh, Brother Kerry and I had the uh, privilege and honor to go to uh, Kenya last year and to uh, preach there across four different venues. And one of the topics that, uh, uh, that I preached on was the uh, nature of giving to the church. How does the church raise its money? And so when I saw the four uh, topics for this retreat, I thought, hey, that one about giving sounds similar to the one that uh, uh, did there in Kenya. So, uh, so I selected that one, and so I have taken that sermon, and I have given it a little bit different focus than what I did there in Kenya. You'll hear, Carrie will hear a number of similar thoughts from that particular sermon, but I want to uh, give it a slightly different approach. In fact, I'm even going to I'm going to entitle the sermon differently than what you see it on the screen. Uh, on the screen, it's a godly man's love for the giving to the church. I'm going to change the word to to the word of. The godly man's love for the giving of the church. Because I think there's more to this than just to the church. Okay, so, so uh, we're, we're, we're going to change it slightly. In fact, I'm going to be focusing here more on the general concept of giving um, rather than just how the church raises its money. It's designed to address the godly man's love of giving in all of its aspects in terms of the life of the church. Now, as I said last night, we are creatures made in the image of God, and we possess certain characteristics by virtue of being created by God. As we discussed last night, we are relational creatures. We are designed by our creator, who is a personal God, uh, to have relationship with one another. That's part of what it means to gather. Uh, we're relational creatures, but we are also, by definition, physical creatures. We live in a physical world. We are a part of this material world as physical beings. And by definition, we are subject to the realities, material realities all around us, including the economic realities all around us. We will, by necessity, as believers, as those brought to faith by the Spirit of God, we will have to deal with the issues of material things, and more particularly, more specifically, to economic things. Money is an inescapable topic uh, to talk about. Now, I realize that some have attempted to navigate the faith without really talking about money. There's many churches where it's almost verboten to talk about money. You, you, know, you don't, just, shh, don't, don't talk about that. We don't talk about money. And we especially don't talk about, you know, Paying a preacher. We don't do that. You know, we don't talk about that stuff. But the fact is, is the Bible is replete with the issues of money. Money is a reality that, that none of us can escape. It's just a part of the very reality of living. I mean, someone was even here a minute ago talking about how he wanted to pay just a dollar a square foot for material to put on the floor in his home. It's just a reality. We, we live in a world. Uh, of economics. It's a significant subject. As you know, the New Testament is replete with issues of money. Jesus himself taught directly about money in a number of particular cases, like Matthew 6, 24. He used money to make points and parables. He would use it as a way of, of making some particular spiritual point in a parable. And he often saw money as symbolic to the distinction of living by faith. 
versus not living by faith. He would use money as a, as a contrast to do that. The Apostle Paul devotes much ink to money as it relates to believers and their use of it. We're going to be looking at that more closely in a few minutes. In other words, the New Testament has a lot to say about this thing called money because it's a part of the reality of what it means to be a creature, a material creature in this world. We cannot escape this reality. And there's a connection of money to our spiritual existence, to our spiritual lives. How we manage money in life says a great deal about our relationship to God. How we deal with material things like money and possessions tells us a great deal about how we relate to our God. So there is a relationship of money to the church. The godly man is going to have to, by definition, deal with this reality in the course of his relationship to the church. And the church itself, of course, will require financial monies in order to operate. Just like any other institution in this world, it's going to have to deal with this reality. You're going to need money to support a building where you come together, right? So if we're going to gather together, we're going to need some place to do that. You're going to need to compensate those who labor to preach. You're going to need monies to expand the ministries of the church beyond its own people for missions, for example, in, in, the, in the going, as Brother Kerry spoke of last night, and for the benevolence of those in need, those experiencing hardships or difficulties. So there's a, there's a great deal of reality of this within the framework of the church, which means that the godly man must have a biblical view of money and its usage. The godly man is going to have a biblical understanding of this reality that God has placed us in as creatures made from the dust of the ground. We're going to have to have a consistent with the gospel view of money. In this case, what we're going to be talking about this morning is the godly man's view of giving. The giving of money to the church and the giving of the church to the world through the resources that it receives through its members. So even as we gather together, we will pool funds together for the work we are doing. And then as we are going, we will be taking resources from the church and going into the world. So even in the two topics we talked about last night, this is one of those related realities. There's a gathering and a going that are going to have to have some aspect related to giving. So let's talk very briefly then about the means of giving to the church. This was the primary topic that I dealt with in Kenya, having to do with how does a church raise its money, but it's appropriate to review here. There's two primary means by which the church raises its funds. Uh, Conrad Mabewe, in his book that we used in Kenya, suggests a third, but I'm just going to set that one aside tonight, and just or this morning, and just talk about the two primary means that the church is going to use to raise the monies it needs in order to operate under the uh, realities I spoke of a moment ago. The first is the tithe. The tithe is that predetermined portion of what we possess that we set aside as a regular form of contribution. The concept is ancient. 
It appears all the way back in Genesis chapter 14. You go back to the very earliest time of human history when Abraham gave to Melchizedek a tithe of what he had gained in the spoils of the kings of the valley. And it's later, as you remember, supplemented in the Mosaic Law. Leviticus 27.30 speaks specifically of it. And it was for the support of those who provided the spiritual help of those who ministered in Israel. So the tithe, this regular portion that we are to set aside, is found deep in human history. And there's substantial reason to believe that the concept of the tithe is still a legitimate requirement even in this day. It's different in a sense, but it's still very much a very real thing as a part of the New Testament. And the, answer, and the reason why is, as I said, this concept predates the law. It goes back 600 years before the law itself was even established. In fact, there's even hints of this idea of a tithe found all the way back in Genesis chapter 4 when Cain and Abel brought their offering to the Lord. They brought an offering that was expected of them. Cain didn't bring what he was expected to bring by God, and it's what caused the trouble between him and his brother. So while we recognize that there are certain aspects of the ceremonial code that we see in the Old Testament that have been done away with, I mean, there are no temples anymore and we offer sacrifices in, we recognize that, but there are still many other aspects of the Old Testament worship that carry on. They don't carry on in the same way and they certainly don't have the same symbolisms as they did, but they still carry on. We still see the Sabbath as a foundational reality to what it means to be a follower of Christ. We gather on a day set aside and we know that that's not initiated in the law, that's initiated in the creation account. At the end of Genesis chapter one, in the beginning of chapter two, when it says that God rested from all of his work and the law, you remember, appeals to that rest of the Lord in order to justify the Sabbath amongst the people of Israel in the law. We still continue that. We set aside a day to gather as the people of God and to worship under that very ancient reality. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul equates paying a preacher to the Old Testament support of the Levites. I'll come back to that in a minute. In other words, neither Jesus nor any of the New Testament apostles ever repudiate the tithe. It's still very much in effect. It has a very different sense to it. The New Testament view of tithing seems to elevate it to a much higher form of worship than just the, you know, write a check and give it and hope that's good enough. It has a much higher value, as we said even last night, talking about gathering. We don't just gather in order to satisfy some regulation to go to church. We gather because it's a deeper, it represents drawing near in a deeper relationship than Adam could ever have. And so when Abraham offered a tithe to Melchizedek, okay, he gave a tithe out of gratitude, but we are giving a tithe out of even a much higher form of worship than what was seen in the Old Testament. It's an entirely different perspective of what tithing is all about. So the first means of giving that the believer faces is the issue of the tithe, and the second is following after it, which we call the free will offering. The free will offering differs from the tithe in that it's a sense of generosity flowing out of the heart of the regenerate man 
in which he gives out of his own abundance towards the needs of others through the church. So while the tithe is, okay, this is the part that I'm setting aside on a regular basis to give to the Lord as a part of the ordinary process of living and worshiping, this offering here is what I'm giving over and above that for something special. Out of my generosity, out of my abundance, out of my gratitude to God for all that he's done for me, I'm going to give even more. It's money's given above the expected, if you will. And I'm putting expected in quotation marks because, again, I don't want you to get the feeling that this tithe is some sort of obligatory giving that we give, that the law simply demands that we give, and we give it out of you know, just gritting our teeth and writing the check and, okay, God, here's the money. No, it's given out of that sense of love. It's given out of that sense of, of what we've received. But the free will offering goes even further than that. It's that overflow of thankfulness that translates into that which is given just because we're led to do so, just because we just feel that sense of generosity out of our newfound relationship with God. Now, this is often given in specific ways towards specific things. Maybe some need arises in the body, supporting widows or orphans, for example, or helping with disasters, or maybe a building project, or some education function, or maybe just an act of kindness that one wants to do. It's a sense in which a need is seen or an opportunity is seen and the man of God, the godly man says, I want to give that out of the generosity of God giving to me. I want to give out of the abundance that he's given. It's clearly pictured in the New Testament. Paul had purposed, as you remember, at the end of his third missionary journey to take up a collection for the saints in Jerusalem who were suffering under a famine that had struck in that area, and he was going to bring a gift back from the churches in Macedonia and Achaia uh, to them. So it's clearly pictured, even in the, in, in the New Testament. So we have this, these two means that the godly man is given, the tithe and the offering, that he brings into the storehouse out of the relationship to God. But I want to show you something from 2 Corinthians chapter 9 having to do with this that goes to this issue of the godly man giving. What is his view of giving to the church? Now Paul starts out 2 Corinthians 9 by reminding the church at Corinth that he was going to send some brothers to the church. He was going to send some brothers to them to collect the gift that they had promised. They had made a promise to him that they would give as a part of this collection. And so he was going to send them out of his full expectation that they're still willing to give this gift. It's a point actually that begins back in chapter 8 because he, back in that chapter, he praises the Macedonian brothers, meaning those up in Philippi at the northern end of Greece, that had given out of their extreme poverty into an overflow of generosity, as he called it. They had given out of an overflow. It was a great gift that had come out of their poverty. And the Corinthian believers in the south had promised also a gift out of generosity. Paul says they're not giving out of exaction, but they're giving out of, out of generosity. The King, King James uses not giving out of covetousness. I mean, it's not giving out of some sort of greediness or exploitation or 
giving a gift with some sort of strings attached to it. They would promise Paul that they would give him a gift just out of pure generosity. And so Paul comes at the beginning of 2 Corinthians 9 and he reminds them of that promise. He says, you promised to give that, so I'm now calling on you to actuate that. I'm going to send some brothers and they're going to collect it from you. Which leads to verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 9. Again, as we did last night, we're going to look at a passage that's relatively familiar, but I would suggest is used very often improperly. All right, so in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, Paul puts before them an indicative, okay, a truth statement. As he typically does, he always begins with a truth statement. So 9, 6, he says, the point is this, okay, meaning... All of what I just said about you promising to give me something, here's the point I want to make to you. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So he puts before them this farming metaphor of scattering seed. In those days when a farmer would go out, he would fling seed out into his fields. He would plow it, and then he would fling the seed out. And by definition, the more seed that you would scatter, the more potential plants to harvest would grow. If you only flung a few seeds, you'd only get a few plants, thus you'd only get a small harvest. If you flung a great number of seeds, you would get many potential plants returning a great harvest. So there's a sense in which, all right, if you fling more seed, you're going to get more blessing from it, right? Now, Be careful here, because Paul is not suggesting here that the amount of blessing that we receive back by giving is proportional to our planting. Okay, that's that's the mistake that many of the health, wealth, and prosperity guys make when they say, you know, fling a seed, sow a seed, and then you're going to get a blessing back from it because it's all about what you give coming back upon you. That's not where Paul is going. Rather, it's When you fling the seed, the blessing that comes is the blessing that goes out into the lives of others. Paul's entire point here is you, Corinthians, are going to give so that the saints in Jerusalem are blessed. Not you, them. So if you sow sparingly, they're going to be blessed sparingly. If you sow exceedingly, they're going to be receiving much generosity. It's a blessing into the lives of others. It's not blessings coming back to you, but the blessings granted to others. The one who gives generously will reap a generous harvest into those he plants the seed into, is where Paul is going. Which leads then to verse 7. And this is now an imperative that follows the indicative. So the indicative is, Sow a lot, get a lot. Sow a little, get a little. Okay, that's a simple indicative. And then he puts this imperative. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Okay, so once again, you see the familiarity of this verse, right? You hear it all the time, right? Especially in sermon series on tithing that Baptist preachers are almost obligated to do every year, right? At some point, when the budget starts straining, they immediately pull out the old tithing series in order to, you know, beat their people over the head. And they typically use this verse as some sort of cudgel, just like 
the one we looked at last night. But this is an imperative flowing from the axiom above. Each one must decide for himself how generous he wishes to be, not reluctantly or under compulsion, as though forced to do so in some sort of religious sense of obligation or giving in order to be rewarded. Very often, unfortunately, that's how many pastors use this passage, you see. Well, you are required to give, so give cheerfully. And if you can't give cheerfully, then just fake it. Well, that's kind of missing the point because the point of the indicative is if you sow sparingly, you're going to get back sparingly. But if you sow generously... Okay, so this is built on the idea of the axiom flowing out into the imperative because God loves a cheerful giver. The love of God is exemplified in the actions of the one who loves others by his attitude. Does God love a cheerful giver? Yes. Is God himself a cheerful giver? And the answer is yes. He sows generously. And so the, 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 the godly man loves giving out of his cheerful heart as one born again by the Spirit to a new nature of generosity and love for others. As God has put his new nature into us, it is a nature flowing out of His nature and his nature is one of being a cheerful giver. God cheerfully gave you your new nature out of his grace and mercy, out of his radical choice to do so. Therefore, the nature of the godly man is such that he possesses a cheerful heart. He thinks differently just by virtue of being born again. God's love is manifested through the one who acts similarly to God himself. I put it like this all the time. If we've been born again by the spirit of the living God and our faith is to show itself in the way that we act, then by definition, isn't the way we act to be similar to the very nature of God himself? Those two things connect, do they not? If we've been given the nature of God, should we not then act like God? If he's cheerful and generous, then shouldn't that just automatically be a part of us, acting similar to God himself? Out of that, as I said last night, out of that new relationship that we have with him, not some religious obligation, but a change of our entire view of our connection and relationship to him. The godly man loves to give because the godly man knows how much has been given to him. The godly man loves to give because he knows that God is cheerfully given to him. God did not give to you out of some sort of obligation. He gave to you out of an infinite love that he had set upon you even before the foundation of the world. The godly man says, that is my motivation for giving. So this love of giving comes in two forms, which is needed inside the church by his grace 
and that which flows outside the church in his hope. So the godly man's grace in giving and the godly man's hope in giving. Now, let's start with the godly man's giving to the church. What is the single most important activity in the life of the local church? What's the single most important activity in the life of the local church? The preaching of the word. Now, the failure to answer that question correctly explains a great deal of the weakness of the church of our day, okay? Flat out, simply put, the weakness of the modern church is based on the fact that that's no longer answered in that way. Everything else has become more important than the preaching of the word in the life of the church. And you want to know why the church in America is weak and unable to deal with the cultural calamities that are going on is because nobody wants the preached word anymore. They want something else. But the true church, the true church of Jesus Christ recognizes, wait a minute, the single most important thing that we can do when we gather together as the people of God is to sit and listen to the Lord speak to us from his word. And the reality of that is, of course, if we're going to just be honest about it, is that the man who preaches is the single largest expense of the church. I am the single largest expense of Grace Fellowship Baptist Church. That's humbling. Carrie is the single largest expense of this church. And we... Oh, again, people get nervous right about here. Oh, wait a minute. He's going to start talking about his money now. Uh, let's, uh, where, what can I think about? Right? People get nervous right about here when we start talking about these things. But the New Testament doesn't shy away from this. Now, I realize that in many mega churches, preaching or the salaries of the, uh, of this, uh, preachers are not necessarily the, uh, the largest expense. In many cases, the mega churches spend far more on programs than they do on preaching, far more on stuff that they do rather than on preaching. But in most churches, typical ordinary churches like this one and the one back in Robertsdale, the single greatest budgetary item is providing for a pastor to preach. I would suggest that maybe the problem with the megachurch model is exactly this inversion, right? That maybe the problem is that because most of the money goes to things other than preaching, that's where the problem of such churches really lies. I'll leave that for another day. But I'll put this to you, and this is the thesis that I put before my Kenyan brothers. The godly man loves to compensate the elders who preach and desires to do so with great generosity because he is selfish. Because he is selfish. Now, what? What did he just say? Well, let me put it like this. The godly man says... I need for the Lord to speak to me through his word. I need to hear regularly and consistently the preaching of the word. That's what I need. I need that. I selfishly and or jealously desire for the word to come to me. 
When I gather with my brothers and sisters, I don't want to just come and be entertained. I want somebody to stand in the pulpit and preach to me. I want somebody to open the word of God and teach me what the Bible teaches. Help me, edify me, rebuke me, encourage me, strengthen me, whatever. I need for the Lord to speak to me. And I know this. I know that the man who's going to do that needs the time to prepare and to pray and to meditate upon the scriptures in order to stand in the pulpit and preach. And because I am so jealous for the word of God to come, I'm going to make sure as a giver, as a godly man, I'm going to make sure that he does nothing else but that. Go to your office, prepare, pray, meditate, and then come here and preach the word to me. We'll take care of everything else, preacher. You prepare and preach. That's what I mean by selfish. I want that word. I am desperate for it, selfish, jealous for his time, that he will bring me the word of God. Paul, Paul speaks of this very clearly in 1 Corinthians 9. I won't go through it in much detail, but I'll point to two things that he says in that passage on this very subject. He appeals to the Old Testament law which guides this truth. And the Old Testament law was do not muzzle the grain while he's treading out, while he's treading it out, right? Let him eat from it. The, the man who preaches should make his living from the preaching of the gospel. But the reason why is because it was a part of the ancient law. You gave to the person who benefited you what they needed. If you're being benefited by the word of God being preached to you, then you should compensate the man to do so. And not just so that he can, you know, just be lazy. No, you compensated him so he could be busy. So he can be busy at it and not having to worry about something else. And secondly, Paul not only appeals to the Old Testament law, but he also appeals to the Old Testament precedent that when the people would bring their sacrifices into the temple, the Levitical priests would eat them. That's what they would use to survive. The Levites, you remember, were not given land. They had to live off the people supporting them as the Levites then supported them back spiritually. This is a tribe set aside, God says, for the edification of a people, for the spiritual advancement of a people. So take care of them. Make sure that that's all they're doing. Paul states the command very much outright in verse 14 of that chapter. The church is commanded to fully compensate those who preach the word. Those who preach should live of the gospel as the, even as Paul says, is the express order of our Lord Jesus. Because the godly man is jealous for the preaching of the word over him. He does not allow anything to get in the way of the pastor having the time to study and pray. In a very simple way, he says this, look, preacher, I'm going to gather with the other brothers and sisters in this church and we're going to be here for about an hour on a Sunday morning. That represents one 
half of 1% of my life. It was 186 hours in a week. 168 hours in a week. Which one is it? 68 or not? Okay, there's 100 and some hours in a week. You give him one. You give him one to preach. One hour to preach the word to me. That's one half of 1%. I'm going to give you one half of 1% of my life. But here's the deal. I'm going to give you that one half of 1%. You need to fill it up with the word. Don't waste that hour. Don't come to me with don't come to me with messages that make me feel good and you know don't come to me with emotionalism don't come to me with entertainment and joke telling and storytelling I don't want that give me the word of god we're going to pay you for the other 99 and a half percent of your life so that you can give me that one half of 1% fully and completely you see the godly man says the godly man says, I need the word. In fact, the godly man sees ministerial compensation from the perspective of sola gratia, by faith. In verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 9, he says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency at all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. The godly man knows that all that he has and all that he is comes from the grace of God. He knows that everything he has and everything he is, more importantly, comes from the grace of God, that God has given it to him. I call grace a radical choice of God. A radical choice on the part of God. Because it's not something God should have done. He should have cast us away from his presence. He should have destroyed us. Because we were unholy and rebellious and wicked. He should have done away with us. But he did something even against his own nature. He radically chose to love us. And the godly man knows that. And he knows that that radical choice to love him means that he can begin to love others. And he knows that he himself has been brought to faith by the preaching of the word, an act of God's grace. The preaching of the word of God is an act of grace on the part of God. It is a function of sola gratia. The Lord condescended to send a preacher of some sort into your life to bring you to faith. And he sends a preacher into your life to grow you in that faith, to sanctify you, to edify you, to strengthen you in that faith. And so the godly man knows that all that he has is by the grace of God. And so Paul says in verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food. Now, who is that? Well, that's God. He supplied the seed. He supplies the growth. He will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. 
In this context, I would say from those verses that the godly man seeks for others to hear the word, relying upon the generosity of God to enrich him so that he can advance the preaching of the word. He doesn't just want the word preached to himself. He wants the word preached to everybody else in the congregation as well. The godly man says, yes, I want to hear the word of God, but I want my wife to hear the word of God. I want my children to hear the word of God. I want my grandchildren to hear the word of God. I want the preaching of the word of God to not just be a part of what I'm doing, but all of us are doing as we gather together as the godly. You see? My God will supply and increase the harvest of your righteousness and you will be enriched in every way to be generous. Not just generous in giving, but generous in the, in the overflow of what it is that God has purposed to do through and in the church as the man of God gives. So the godly man loves the grace of God that has saved him through the preaching of the word, thus he loves to give towards that means of God's grace going out. He comes into the gathering, he sits at the foot of the throne of Christ and through the preacher hears the voice of God. And he says, I want that in my life and the life of everybody else in the congregation. And so he gives towards that, not out of obligation again, but out of that strong sense of, I have known the love of God who gave to me. And he did so cheerfully and exceedingly, not sparingly, but exceedingly he has given to me. So the godly man gives out of that sense of grace, out of that understanding of the grace of God that has come upon us. But the godly man also gives out of the hope in giving. See, if you're going to do a sermon on the godly man's love of giving, you must also reflect on the giving of the church itself. So I changed the word from to to of. Because yes, it is good for the godly man to give to the church, but it's also good for the godly man to love the church giving out as well. The church gives as much as the individual gives. So it's not just love giving to the church, but the love expressed from the church through its resources. It is, if you will, the very expectation of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 9, right? He's He's coming to the Corinthians and saying, you remember you made a promise to me that you were going to give and you're going to give out of the church what has been received into the church, but you're going to give out of that church and you're going to go out into the world with that and especially to the saints in Jerusalem. So it's the very essence of this entire passage. It's the point. So the godly man not only loves giving to the church out of knowing what it is that God has given to him, but the godly man loves the giving that goes out from the church into the world because he knows that it is through the generosity of the church that the gospel advances into the world. Now again, this ties into what Brother Kerry was speaking of last night. As we are going, what are we going with? We're going with the resources of the church. Now, first and foremost, of course, we're going with the scriptures. We're going with the word of God. That's our primary 
tool, our primary resource that's been given to us. But the fact is we're also going to go, again, being creatures living in a material world, we're also be going to be going out with the monetary realities of the church as well in order to assist in the aid of that gospel going out into the world. The generosity of the local church overflows out of it beyond what Paul says is the needs of the saints. Look at verse 12. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. It's going beyond just the needs of the saints. True, true, the saints in Jerusalem were going to be blessed from the church in Corinth and the church at Philippi and so forth, giving to this offering that Paul was going to give. Certainly, the saints were going to be edified. But Paul says, oh, it's going to go beyond that. It's going to go beyond that. You, you plant seeds, you Corinthians, into the lives of those Jerusalem saints. What are they going to do? They're going to take that seed. It's going to multiply through them and go out beyond them as they then go out into the world, as they are going out into the world with the message of the gospel. You're, you're taking resources that you have and planting it in them and expanding what they are doing. That's what he's saying. In fact, in that verse, Paul calls it a, a diacona of, I'm not sure how to pronounce this word, but probably something close to liturgia. We get our word liturgy from this word. A ministry of worship. He calls what the Corinthians are called to do a ministry of worship. A ministry of worship. It's the overflow of the worship of the saints, whereby their thanksgivings are far greater than the needs of the local church. They're far greater. Yes, we bring our tithes, we bring our offerings into the church, and those are greater than what is even needed to support the preaching of the word. It grows even beyond that. The generosity of the godly man is more than that to go out into the world with this message of the gospel. And there's a number of different ways, of course, that this is going to go out Brother Kerry touched on some of these last night. First, the idea of missions, giving financial support to those that carry the gospel to the ends of the earth, the partnership that the local church has in supporting the advance of the kingdom to the nations. At Grace Fellowship, for example, we expressly set aside 10% of all tithes and offerings given to the church to fund missionary enterprises. We have local versions like the Women's Care Medical Center that we support there in Robertsdale, helping women not to get abortions. We have foreign missionaries in places like Costa Rica that we support that are planting churches in that place. And we have discipleship and pastoral care ministries that we support like APC in Kenya, Special Friends Ministry in Alaska, and so forth. All of those being extensions out of the overflow of the church, setting aside the funds that are given in order to expand beyond the walls of the church through this thing called missions. But we also have a benevolence side to that as well. Financial support purposely to help the poor and the needy. We call them in the church mercy ministries that aid those associated with the church in times of financial need or as gifts of generosity. 
In fact, that's exactly what Paul is doing in this case. He's doing a benevolence ministry of taking funds to those who were in need. Grace Fellowship Baptist Church sets aside 2% of all tithes and offerings to fund benevolence needs according to a well-developed policy of what we call proper use. And what we mean by proper use is to prevent abuse of the generosity of the church by those with the means of self-support. We ascribe to the tenants that are derived out of 1 Timothy 5 of the widow's fund and who's to be in it and who's not. We have a policy set aside as to who can take from the benevolence fund in order not to produce abuse of the system, and properly so. But it's flowing out overflowing, Paul says, out of the thankfulness so that we can help the poor and the needy amongst us and we can send missionaries to the uttermost parts of the earth to preach the gospel and we can send myself and Brother Kerry and others to Kenya to preach the gospel in those places and to assist local pastors there to be discipled in the faith. It's an outgrowth of the fundamental need of the church inside. In verse, so in verse 13, Paul writes, by their approval of this service, and I think he means by those that are receiving this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. They will be They will see the evidence of your generosity. They will see the evidence of your love of God. They will see the evidence of your recognizing the generosity of God as we submit ourselves. It's probably a very similar thought in these verses to Jesus' own words in Matthew 5, right? When he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your fathers in heaven, your father in heaven. They're going to look at you, and out of your good works, they're going to say, hey, that man loves God, and they will glorify God through it. It's part of the advance of the gospel. As we are going, our going out into the world is to go out with a sense of generosity from what God has given to us, out of our understanding of his grace and mercy to us. It overflows out of us. And becomes a testimony to the world. The the godly man sees the value of giving to the church, not to just take care of the church itself, although that's where we start, but to assure that the generosity of the church leads to the expansion of the kingdom of God. We give in order to receive the preaching of the word we give, in order to support the needs of the saints, our spiritual needs most specifically in terms of the preaching of the word, we give towards that because we really want that, we're jealous for that, we're demanding that the preacher preach to us, but then out of that we are constantly and consistently reminded of the generosity of our God, the preaching produces without us a great sense of humility and submission, and our desire is to give even more, and it overflows out of us into the world around us. That's how Paul is expressing this gift that the Corinthians are giving. In fact, if you look at these verses, this is high praise from Paul to the church of Corinth. You made a promise to give. 
And trust me, Paul says, trust me, it is going to have tremendous impact when you do so. The godly man loves the giving of the church just as much as he loves the giving to the church, he loves the giving of the church, for he knows that he himself has received an inexpressible gift in the love of God through Jesus Christ. In fact, even at the end of this pericope, Paul says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. He's connecting the whole thing back to the inexpressible gift that God has given to us in our faith. The godly man has no room for stinginess. No room for stinginess, either in his own giving or in the giving of the church itself. For he knows that it is only the inexpressible gift of God's grace that has brought him to life. Therefore, he loves to give and to see the church of the Lord give to others. That the gospel would be advanced even to the ends of the earth. Advanced in him and advanced in others. He gives to the church so the gospel is advanced to him and he gives to the church so that the church can give out such that the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. You see, I hope, my prayer is that over the two sermons that I have preached on the gathering and giving to the church that you would see that we don't gather just because it's an obligation and we don't give just because it's an obligation. The godly man doesn't think like that. The godly man says, no, wait, wait. We, we gather because it is a part of what it means to have a relationship with the one true God, a relationship that's been redeemed and glorified above any other relationship that has ever existed. We have a new relationship with the creator. And the same exact point can be made about our giving. We don't just give out of obligation. We give because we are in a new relationship with our creator based on his unmitigated love and grace towards us. He has not been stingy with us in any way. He has given us everything that we need. And the, the truly godly man born again by the spirit of God says, you know what? There is nothing holding me back from being as generous as my Lord. Because all that I am and all that I have, he has given to me. And I'm going to be generous as he was, for I bear his nature in me. The godly man loves the giving of the church, his own and the giving the church gives because it is out of grace that it is done. Let's pray together. Father, thank you once again.